All right. Good morning, Central Church. How are you? And if you're just visiting, you're not a regular part of Central Church, good morning to you as well. Happy New Year to everybody. Isn't it great to be back together, like in person? Like, I, I love having a weekend off, but I miss you guys, and I miss being together as the, as the church and the family of God. So great to see you all. We're going to start a, a short new series uh, this weekend that's called Foundations. Foundations. I'll get into that a little bit more in just a second. But if you have a Bible this morning, and I hope you do, uh, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 15? If you need a Bible, there's probably one in the seat back pocket in front of you or under a seat if you're up front here. Luke chapter 15, we're going to jump in there in just a second. And as you're turning there, let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the power of your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you, you said if, if we abide in your word, then we're, we're truly your disciples and we'll know the truth and the truth will set us free. The truth will free us from self-deception. It'll free us from fear. It'll free us from all those things that keep us from your plan for our lives. So, Lord, open your word to us now. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. Lead us in truth. Help us to understand your heart uh, for this series. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Foundations. A foundation is the necessary structure upon which something is built. A foundation is the necessary structure upon which something is built. Things have foundations. Relationships have foundations. Uh, the foundation of trust, the foundation of honesty, the foundation of empathy. Those are foundational to healthy relationships. Parenting, good, good parenting, has foundations. Uh, starting with the foundation of biblical truth. That, that's the foundation of all parenting. Uh, and then the, the, the foundation of consistency or faithfulness. And, and then the, the foundation of agreement between mom and dad about their particular philosophy of parenting. All of those are just foundational to, to good parenting. Physical and mental health has foundations. Uh, the, the foundation of stress management, the, the foundation of rest, the foundation of diet, the foundation of exercise, all of those are foundational to mental and, and physical health in our lives, emotional health as well. And the church has a foundation. Did you know that? In Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 to 18, Jesus said, the church is built upon the foundation of the revelation or understanding that Jesus is God. That's the basis. It's, it's the understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, Paul comes along in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, and he says, like, like a master builder, I laid a foundation in the church. And now others are building on that foundation. But he says, there's only one true foundation, and that's Jesus Christ. So the truth about who Jesus is and the truth about what Jesus taught is the foundation of the church. So as we talk about foundations in the next few weeks, I, I want to address some, some foundational truths of Jesus that are key to our mission here at Central. And I want to do more than that. I, I, don't, I, I want to not only share with you and address these key foundational issues of Jesus, what he taught us, but I want to invite you. I want, I want to invite you to be part of Christ's mission. Christ's mission for the church. And some of you are spectators and you're not participants. And again, I, as we talk about these issues, these, these different parts of the, the foundation that Christ has given us, Man, I want to invite you to join. I want to invite you to participate. Don't just stand on the sidelines. In 538 BC, a Persian king by the name of Cyrus issued a decree 
that all of the Jews that had previously been in captivity in Babylon were now free. They were free to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And most of the Jews that were living in Babylon at that time said, hey, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, we've got it pretty good here. They, they, they were comfortable. They had nice homes. They, they were earning a nice living. Uh, th their families were in place. Why, why would I want to leave that and go back to rebuild a devastated city? But some did. There was actually three phases of the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. Uh, the first was, was in 538 BC, led by a man named Zerubbabel. And the primary focus of that first group of exiled Jews that returned to Jerusalem was to rebuild the temple of God. There was a second group of Jews that returned to Jerusalem, and that was in 458 BC, led by a man named Ezra. The primary focus of that second group of exiled Jews that returned to Jerusalem was to, um, to, to restore the law and worship in the temple and in the community. There was a third group of Jews that returned to Jerusalem in about 445 BC, led by a man named Nehemiah. And the, the primary focus of that group was to rebuild the broken walls and gates of Jerusalem that surrounded the city. And the purpose of that was to protect the temple and everything that they had built from foreign invasion. So in 536, after Zerubbabel had led that first group of Jews back to Jerusalem, in 536, the foundation for the temple was laid. And we read about that in, in uh, uh, Ezra chapter 3. All the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yay, woohoo, for the Jews who went back and they laid the foundation so that they could begin to build the temple. But there were some people there that were unhappy with the building of the temple. There were foreigners that when the, when the Jews had been driven out by the Babylonians, they moved in. And these foreign nations moved in and, and they didn't want the Jews coming back and rebuilding the city and pushing them out. So they opposed the work of rebuilding the temple. In fact, they stopped it. The opposition was so strong that they, they stopped building the temple for 16 years. So in, in, in 521 BC, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah came to Jerusalem and they began to prophesy to the people and inspire them and motivate them saying, hey, it's time to build the Lord's house. 16 years is, is a long time, but there was a problem. <laughs> During that 16 years, the people uh, were more interested in building their own houses than building God's house. They had become consumed with their own personal success instead of God's success. They didn't want to sacrifice their own time, their own money, their own resources, and their own energy to build God's house. Uh, they didn't want the, the demands and the sacrifices that came with building God's kingdom. So, so essentially they said thanks, but no thanks. We're, we're, we're pretty good as we are. And you know what, that's unfortunately where a lot of people are in the church today. A lot of Christians are, are more interested with building their own house and their own kingdom and their own family than God's house and God's family. They're consumed with self-success. They're consumed, consumed with all of their activities and not really concerned with God's activity, building their kingdom and not building God's kingdom. Spectators not participants in the work of God. 
And so the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they, they call the people out. I mean, they, they start prophesying because they were ignoring God's work. They were ignoring God's kingdom. Here's, here's the story in Haggai chapter 1. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. The people are saying that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. We're good, God. We're, we're comfortable pursuing our own pursuits. This isn't the right season to build your house. Then the Lord sent this message to the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. You've planted much in your fields, but harvest little. You eat, but you're not satisfied. You drink, but you're still thirsty. You put on clothes, but you can't keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Look at what's happening. Consider your ways. Now, therefore, go up into the hills, cut down trees, bring the lumber, and rebuild my house. So, so the Lord says to the prophet, it is time to build the Lord's house, not just to build your house. This is a time to invest in the kingdom of God. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You, you hoped for rich harvests, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of heaven's armies, while all of you are busy building your own fine houses. It's because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I have called for a drought on your fields and your hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all of your other crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. God is passionate about his house. God is passionate about his work and he wants us to share in that. And so he says to the people, man, you're, you're, you're investing all of this time into your own stuff and you're not getting ahead. It's not really meeting the need. You're really not that satisfied. Your family's not where it should be. Why? Because I've sort of in, intervened in this situation. I want to I bring this to your attention. I want you to consider your ways, consider what's happening in your life. There's just something's missing. Maybe it's that you're ignoring my work and my house. See, the, the temple in the Old Testament represents the church in the New Testament. The New Testament says that, that the, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is the, the, the dwelling place of God. And so it's, it's our responsibility to build God's church. That's part of God's kingdom, is to build and expand his church and to do his work. So, so what are the foundation stones that Jesus has given us to build the church? What are the truths upon which Christ's church is built. And that's what I want to talk about just for a few weeks here. And the first foundational truth is this. Lost people matter to God. Spiritually lost people matter to God. And therefore, they should matter to us. First foundational truth. People who don't know God, people who don't know Jesus Christ, people who are not Christians, they matter to God. And therefore, because they're important to God, they should also matter to us. The problem in Jesus' day was that the, the, the Jewish leaders, they didn't really care about lost people. They really weren't concerned for their, for their spiritual well-being. And so in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three consecutive parables to teach 
the Pharisees, the Jewish, excuse me, Jewish leaders, why lost people are important. Let's read that together. Uh, Luke chapter 15, these three parables beginning in verse 1. Tax collectors and notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. I just got to stop there for a second. This, this fascinates me because Jesus was the ultimate preacher of truth. But, but, but notorious sinners, people living a life of sin were drawn to him. He wasn't preachy. He wasn't judgmental. He, he wasn't condescending. He wasn't condemning. Somehow he loved people enough that they were willing to listen to truth. Is that true in your life? Is that true in my life? Or are we preachy? Are we judgy? Are we condemning toward people not living a life that's pleasing to God? Somehow they came to Jesus and they were interested in listening to what he had to say. This made the Pharisees, the fact that these, these notorious sinful people were, were coming to Jesus, this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain and grumble that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them violating the Jewish law by eating with Gentiles and people that were ceremonially unclean according to the Jewish law. These folks, they, they, they were more concerned with the law than with people. They were more concerned about their sin than their souls. Does anybody know what I'm talking about this morning? More con concerned with the sin in their life than the fact that they had souls that needed to be saved. So they would remove themselves from those folks. J Jesus didn't remove himself from sinful people. He hung out with them. He shared truth with them and he loved them. Verse three, therefore, because of the Pharisees' response to Jesus complaining and grumbling about him being with lost people, Jesus told them this story. Verse four, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 sheep in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and his neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who don't need, uh, who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Parable number two, verse eight. He goes on, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is much joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them a third parable. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate or my inheritance now before you die. The most offensive thing a Jewish son, son could say to his father, essentially he's saying, you're dead to me now. I don't care about you now. Just give me the money that I'm going to get when you die. I'm not interested in a relationship with you. I'm just interested in your money. Really the most uh, proud and, and arrogant and offensive thing a, a son could say, to a father. You're dead to me. Just, just give me my money. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. 
About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. Let me just, just make a comment to parents with prodigals, kids that have wandered away from God, kids, kids that have, uh, are, are living a lifestyle in darkness and separate from God. You're praying for them and pray for famine. Pray that God would bring a famine because it was the famine that turned this kid around. He began to starve and that's what eventually drove him home. Pray that God will bring circumstances into your children's lives that will make them desperate, desperate for God in their life. Okay, where are we here? Verse 14. About this time, his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land. He began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one was offering to give him anything to eat. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants of my father have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant." So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Now, obviously, in this story, the father of the sons represents God, represents the heart of God. And how does the father respond, knowing that his son had been living with prostitutes, wasting his money uh, on all of those things? He didn't preach at him. He wasn't judgy with him. He embraced him, loved him, and accepted him. That's the heart of God for every sinner that comes home. Amen? It's the heart of God. Love, compassion, grace. He's so glad to have a son or a daughter come home. He embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe into the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Fully restore him to sonship. And, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with the feast for this son of mine was dead and now he has returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party begun. These parables have to do with what we here at Central call oikos. Oikos is a Greek word. It's a Greek word that when it's translated in the New Testament, it simply means house or household or family. The word oikos in the New Testament represents our relational world, the, the, the network of relationships that God has set in our lives. Did you know that God supernaturally and strategically uh, forms your relationship with, with people in your, in your network of friends and family for his purpose? The purpose is that when God sets people in your relational world, that you would share Christ with them. Um, everybody has an oikos, you have an oikos, and, and God connects you with people in relationship, people at school, not everybody at school, but some people at school God connects you with, people at work, maybe not everybody at work, but some people at work you, you have an affinity for and you, you strike up a, a relationship with, people in your neighborhood, not all of your neighbors, but some of your neighbors, people in the workplace, people in the community, that the grocery store that you go to, the restaurants that you attend, wherever it is, they, you have an intersection with people and it's a, it's a divine connection and you build a relationship. That's, that's your relational world. That's your, your oikos. And God, Jesus tells these parables because he, he wants us to understand something about the principle of oikos from these parables. And 
I just want to say this. The, the, oikos forces us to experience three things related to these parables. The first is uh, personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. So let's go back and look at these, at these parables and, and lines from the parables. First, the shepherd with the sheep, the owner of the sheep, verse 15, verse 6. Rejoice with me, for I have found whose sheep? sheep? Say it real loud. My sheep. My sheep. Not, not my friend's sheep, not, not someone else's sheep, but I found my sheep. Let's go to the woman with the coin. And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. No one else's coins. It was my coin. I lost it and I found it. And, and then the story of the, the father with the sons, the lost son. This son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party begun. Notice the father says this, this son of mine. Now, later in the story, the, the older brother tries to, to dismiss himself from any relationship with his brother. And he says to the father, this son of yours did all this. The father will have nothing to do with it. The father turns to the son. He said, no, no, no. This brother of yours, again, forcing a sense of responsibility and ownership. You can't divorce yourself from family. You can't divorce yourself from your brother. He's your brother. There, there's a sense of responsibility related to that. We, we have a saying around here at Central, and, and it's this. Maybe you've heard it before. When God called me, he had someone else in mind. What does that mean? When God saved me, when God called me to salvation, when, when God called me to have a relationship with him, it didn't end there. In fact, it just started. When God called me, he had other people in mind because he gave me an oikos. He gave me a relational world. He put people in my life that I have relationship with. And so when I got saved, that opened up a door to everybody in my relational world for me to share my faith with. Anytime a person gets saved, it opens up a whole new world for God to bring the gospel into. When a, it's like when a missionary goes to another country, there's a whole new world that he can preach the gospel to. When someone gets saved, all of a sudden, all those friends, all those family members, they are now uh, people that God wants to reach with his love and with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So why does Jesus teach this parable? Because he wants, to see, he wants us to see the lost people in our world as my sheep, my coin, and my son. In other words, no one else can do what I'm responsible to do. I'm responsible for that person. It's my responsibility to share Jesus with that person. It's my responsibility to pray for that person. I, I can't just say someone else will do it. It's not on me. God will send someone to know. If God connected you relationally with somebody, they are part of your oikos, and it's your responsibility to share the love of Jesus Christ with them. That's why our mission statement is this. We exist as a church to, to help you share the love of Jesus with your oikos. That's what we're all about here. So, so if, if you are a Christian and you have an oikos, it's your responsibility to share Christ's love. You can't just say, not on me. That's why Jesus gives us this parable. My sheep, my coin, my son, my oikos. People in my relational world are mine and my responsibility to share Jesus with. I can't leave it up to someone else. So oikos also forces us to experience from these parables personal anxiety. Not only personal responsibility, but personal anxiety. All right, let's look at the story again. Uh, verse 6, the owner of the sheep, rejoice with me. 
for I have found my sheep, which was lost. And then the lady with the coin, rejoice with me, for I have found my coin, which I had lost. And the father, kill the calf, we've been fattening, we must celebrate, we must rejoice with the feast. For this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So what, what started? The party started. Why were they celebrating? Because they were anxious and worried about something that was lost. See, see, when we lose something of value, it creates a feeling of anxiety in our hearts. Some of you parents, hopefully not many, but some of you parents have temporarily misplaced your child. Do, do you know that feeling? You're, you're in a department store or a grocery store, you're somewhere and they were right behind you and all of a sudden you're there, but they're not. Let me just say this, if you're in a department store, check first those, those circular clothing racks because they're usually underneath reading a book or something while you're panicked outside searching everywhere for them. But, but you know the, the feeling of anxiety. There, there's anxiety attached to losing something of value. Jesus tells us this story. He wants there to be a sense of anxiety and concern for those who are lost. You know what I think about this father? He didn't go searching for the son, but I think he worried about him every day. It says that he, was, he, he saw the son when he came home from a long way. I wonder if every day that father stood on the porch and looked at the horizon thinking, is this the day? Is this the day he comes home? Is he alive? Is he healthy? Does he have what he needs? Is he suffering? Does he have a disease? Where's my son? There's always anxiety that's attached to things of value that we lose. And I think that dad was just every day anxious, concerned, and worried about where his son was. So I, I do, this isn't boastful. I do pretty good. I'm not, I, I, I do pretty good managing other people's crisis right? Like that, as a pastor, like when there's tragedy or whatever, I can, I can walk in or if there's chaos, I can, I can usually walk in unemotionally and kind of bring order, except when it's managing my own crisis. Not, not so much, not so good at that. I, I tend, if I lose something or, or I'm under, uh, under a, a short deadline, I kind of panic. Is that true? Very true. Very true. <laughs> How would you word it? Desperate, um, out of control. What? Panic. Panic. It's a good enough word. Yeah. Yeah, I do. So my, my wife and I had the privilege a few months ago to go to Hawaii. It was really a blessing. And so we were there. And the day we came home, the day we were flying out, um, we left the hotel at, at dark before it was, the sun had come up. And we had to get gas in the rental car to return it to the airport. So um, we, we go to the gas station, fill it up and then drive away. And you know, like you had that feeling, wait, do I have my credit card? Like, where is that? So I pulled my wallet out and my credit card wasn't in there. I'm like, uh-oh, where? Okay, the other thing was, that was the only day we were on the island, there were 60 mile an hour winds, okay? So getting gas, I get out and it's just like a hurricane, 60 mile an hour winds. Get the gas, start driving, don't have my credit card. I pull over on the side of the road and get out and search my pockets. I'm looking on the floor thinking maybe I, I didn't put it in my wallet, but I dropped it, looking everywhere for that. I'm, I'm, I'm looking in the back seats, did it fall through, whatever happened, couldn't find it anywhere. So we've got to turn around and go back to the gas station to, to try to find it. As we're driving back, I'm like, where's my wallet now? <laughs> like, where's my driver's license to get on the plane? I didn't have it. Uh, so, so stopped again, 
Um, so, so we went back to the gas station. I realized I don't have my wallet, hun. So we kind of started looking in the car, get back, looking everywhere on, on, the, on the ground for the card. It wasn't there. It was still in the chip reader and in the pump. Right? Yeah. So I was pretty excited. So got the card back, get in the car, and I said, where's the wallet? Where's my driver's license? Didn't have it. So we, we go back to where we pulled off originally because I figured I got out of the car, I dropped my wallet, it fell out of the car, 60-mile-an-hour winds. Who, it could be in a 100-mile radius anywhere there. I'm crawling in the grass, in the weeds. It's still dark, 60-mile-an-hour winds. I'm just panicked, absolutely. You would have been so embarrassed seeing your pastor. do It was awful. It was awful. I was just, like, desperate trying to find that. Couldn't find the wallet anywhere. So we get back in the car. Now I'm just thinking, what, what do I do when I get to the airport? We're driving. I said, hon, would you just look one more time? Just, and she looked, and it was underneath something on the floor. So I, you, big sigh of relief. But I was a mess, like a hot mess. There was incredible anxiety attached to losing something of value. What if that's how God wanted us to feel about lost people? Asking the question, what if they don't come to know Christ? What if my child, what if my teenager, what, what if my adult child, what if my friend, what if my coworker, what if they don't come to know Christ? Am I, am I that anxious and that desperate to do what the people in the story did, leave the 99 and search the fields for the lost sheep, go back into the house and tear it apart to try to find the lost coin. Am I, am I that desperate and anxious to see the people that God has supernaturally and strategically put in my oikos, in my relational world, come to know Christ? Am I worried? What if they enter eternity without Jesus? Do you share that anxiety that the, the people in this parable uh, did? The, the last thing is, Oikos forces us to experience personal sacrifice. And I just kind of mentioned what they did. Let's just read that together. If a man has 100 sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 sheep in the wilderness and go and search for the one that's lost until he finds it? Now, so, so a shepherd is leaving the 99 and he's going into the, probably into the dark, facing wild animals, robbers, thieves, um, exposure to cold or whatever it was, wandering for hours and hours and hours. That's a sacrifice. Wouldn't it be easier just, easier just to say, you know what? what, what is one sheep? Who cares, right? I'm not gonna risk my life. I'm not gonna stress out. I'm, I'm not gonna go out of my way. I'm not gonna sacrifice. And yet Jesus says that one sheep is so important that the shepherd leaves the 99 and makes a sacrifice. The, the lady does the same thing. Here's what it says about her. A, a woman has 10 silver coins. She loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? Won't she desperately search her house? Won't she, won't she do whatever it takes to find the coin? To, to turn every mattress over, to, turn, to look under every table and chair and everything in the house. See, when we feel responsible for someone, we're willing to do whatever it takes for them. Are, are you a whatever it takes kind of person with your kids? Whatever it takes. If you're in school, whatever it takes. I'm going to finish. Whatever it takes. I'm going I'm to do, do, do a good job. Whatever it takes. Are, are you that way? Jesus was. Jesus was like that with lost people. How do we know that? Because he went to the cross. The, the cross is what it took to save sinners. Jesus was willing to do whatever it took. Uh, Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his love toward us in, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. When we didn't want anything to do with him, 
He did whatever it took to save us. Are you like that with people in your relational world? Whatever it takes, however much time it takes, whatever resource it takes, however much energy it takes, I'm willing to make that investment because Jesus says they're of value to him and therefore they should be of value to me. We need to do whatever it takes to help lost people. Um, Dusty Hoffman is a good friend of mine, but he's also been a part of Central here for over 20 years. Uh, Dusty's here this morning. I think I saw him down there. Yeah. And Dusty works for a, a partnering ministry called the Timothy Initiative. And we partner with them. And Dusty knew that we had a significant ministry as a church in Ethiopia. And Dusty came to us as a leadership team and he said, hey, uh, we can, uh, the Timothy Initiative is a, is a global church planting ministry. He said, we, we, could, we, have, we have people in, in Ethiopia, if you wanted to partner with us, and we could begin to share the gospel. And, and here, here's how it works. You, you pay for or you support uh, a, a church planter. And it's $400 for one church planter to go out and plant one church. And, and he said, every, every church, it's, it's, it's the average expected that they will, they will reach 25 new people for Christ. So $400? We could, we could reach, you know, 25 new people, one church. Okay, so we invested $30,000. And then we invested $90,000. And that was like 30 churches or 300 churches or 7,500 people finding Christ for the first time. That was like, is that amazing? Like we can invest our resources and plant 300 churches and see 7,500 people come to Christ. Well, a little while later, Dusty came back to our leadership team. He said, hey, I just want you to pray about something. Normally, when we're, we're setting our budget for the year, we anticipate how many church planters we're gonna have. And usually people drop out. So whatever number we start with, it's always lower by the time we finish. But this year, just the opposite. This year, there are more people that want to plant churches than we anticipated. Well, how many more, Dusty? 1,400, 1,400, and that's 400 per person. So what's that gonna cost us if we wanted to make that investment? He said, 550,000, ouch, that's kind of a lot of money, $550,000. Well, what would that produce? Oh, about 35,000 people coming to Christ. Oh, so we're in a leadership meeting. I'm just doing the math in my head thinking, you know what? Every Wednesday night, we pay for pizza for our students. That's great. And isn't it nice to be able to pay for pizza? For the, they love it. And we help a lot of other people. I thought, what would God's heart want more? Feeding students pizza or 35,000 lost people coming to Christ? And to us, it was a no-brainer. It's like, how are we going to do this? So we had some money in, in our reserve that we put toward that. And then we came to you guys and we said, hey, uh, Will you participate with us? And you guys prayed about it and you guys contributed. And we, we got brought in over $600,000 to see like 35,000 lost people find Christ. You could have clapped on that one. That, that was really good information. So Jesus tells these parables because he says, he, these parables teach us about responsibility. It's my responsibility, not someone else's responsibility. I need to feel an anxiety, an anxiety that will drive me to sacrifice as a church family to be willing to give $600,000 to see global souls won for Christ. What are you willing to do to see people saved? Jesus was willing to do whatever it took. 
He made the ultimate sacrifice and that's the mission of Central Church. And I, I invite you, God cares about lost people and so should we. It's time to build the Lord's house. We can't be like the people in Haggai's day that said, I just wanna build my house. I wanna build my kingdom. I wanna invest in my family. No, you gotta do that, but you gotta build God's house as well. That means realizing that lost people matter to God and they need to matter to you. It means feeling a personal responsibility for everybody God set in your relational world that doesn't know Jesus. Doing whatever it takes to help your oikos, oikos find Christ. That means inviting people to church. It means inviting people to church events where they can hear the gospel, where they can experience the, the, the community of believers. It means talking to people in your relational world about what God has done to change your life. It means praying regularly for people in your relational world. When you came in today, whoops, when you came in today, you got this in your bulletin, this Oikos prayer card. I want you to take it out. The most powerful thing that you can do for the people in your relational world that are near to you but far from God is write them down on this list and pray for them daily, if possible. Now, I work in the church. I work around Christians. I don't have the, the, the advantage of being out in the world for 40 or 50 hours a week connecting with people that don't know Jesus. So, so I, my list is small. I, I have to take this card and, and literally go in my office and set it on the chair and kneel down before God and say, God, you have to put names on this list. And then he does. I'll connect with somebody at the gym or somehow through another relationship, God will bring people into my life that don't know him. And I write their name down and I pray for them regularly. And you would be amazed how many people on this card come to Christ just because I'm praying and trying to reach out and loving them. I want you to take this home and write down the name of every person in your life that's near to you, but far from God. And then pray for them on a regular basis, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes could also mean for us as a church, expanding our facility creating more seats in our worship center. I, I'm genuinely worried about if you do what I'm asking you to do today, if we embrace the mission of Jesus to save lost people, where are they gonna sit? We just don't have room. Where, where are our, teen, our, our students gonna meet on Wednesday nights? We're already full. What about the kids space back there? We, we, we need more space. What are we going to do? And on January 28th, Sunday night, 5 p.m., we're having a congregational meeting to talk about this. We are still in the exploratory stages. No decisions have been made. We've been working with architectural firms and, and, and construction companies saying, what could this look like? We, we've been sort of dreaming a little bit and imagining what, what we need in terms of a facility. Because the, the, the last thing I want as a pastor is for you to invite your oikos to church and they finally come and there's no seat so that they have to go and sit in some overflow room. I want them here. Or, or your, your, your teenage son or daughter invites someone to youth group and they, 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 there's no room for them. Now that breaks my heart, breaks God's heart. So, so what are we gonna do? So if you're a part of Central Church and you're embracing this mission with us, I wanna invite you on January 28th, 5 p.m. right here to come and hear what God's doing and, and, and just share in this with us and speak into this. We wanna pray together and listen together. Say, God, what are you doing here? We wanna build your house, we wanna build your kingdom, but what are you saying to us at this time? Would you stand with me this morning? Lord, we love you this morning. We, we thank you for these three parables that teach us that, that we have responsibility and we should have some anxiety and we should be willing to make a sacrifice for the sake of lost people. God, put that in our hearts. 
Help us to rejoice when every lost person comes to know you. Help us this week, Lord, be more diligent to pray, more diligent to, to share, more diligent to care for the people in our relational world. We ask all these things in Christ's name, amen.